Welcome to Osteobites. My name is Anne Graham. I'm an Osteo Warrior and Executive Director of MIB Agents. Today we have a really interesting topic on Osteobites, courtesy of Dr. John Dosky, Division Chief for Pediatric Surgery and the University of Texas Health, San Antonio Department of Surgery. He will discuss an upcoming randomized trial comparing open and minimally invasive thoracoscopic surgery. Really so, so exciting. We've been talking about this for a little while at Factor and anyway, so excited to hear this come together. Dr. Dosky's medical degree is from the New York University School of Medicine. He completed his general surgery residency at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Following his completion of his time with the US Air Force, he completed a fellowship in pediatric general and thoracic surgery at Children's Medical Center of Dallas under the direction of Dr. Philip Guzetta. His clinical interests include pediatric surgical oncology and resident and medical student education. Dr. Dosky is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, a member of the P American Pediatric Surgery Association and the Children's Oncology Group. So he knows what he's talking about. Before we get started with this conversation, a really big announcement that MIB Agents Annual Factor Conference is on and in person in 2022. It's happening June 23rd to 25th. This is a time when our community of doctors researchers, patients, and patient families will be in San Diego, um, and we all work together to make it better for kids with osteosarcoma. Researchers and doctors, please submit a factor abstract if you'd like to speak at the conference. Those are due on February 25th, and we also have travel awards available for osteosarcoma doctors who might not otherwise be able to attend. In the meantime, Dr. Dosky, could you get us started with an introduction, please? You bet. Uh, so it's in. It's my distinct pleasure to go ahead uh, with you, with Christina, and with Ryan uh, to to present uh, a long-standing labor for about the past eight and a half years, working towards this moment. Uh, the randomized control trial uh, is now about forty-eight hours old. Uh, we had delivery of a healthy baby protocol uh, this past Tuesday. So I'm really excited to go ahead and present this morning. Um, this is a topic uh, that hasn't really received much attention in the past, but it's certainly uh, appropriate and necessary. Uh, and so thank you for the opportunity to present this morning. Uh, hi, my name is Ryan. I am a osteo warrior. I was diagnosed back in all the way back in 2014. Um, I had uh, a limb salvaging surgery. I unfortunately relapsed a year after I finished treatment and had a bat surgery to remove a single nodule. Um, however, ever since I've been cancer-free and I'm currently working in the Schiffman lab. And I am Christina Iptoma. I am mom to Osteo Angel Dylan, and I'm also the director of scientific programs for MIB Agents. And I am very excited to uh, hear Dr. Dosky present today. All right, so the topic this afternoon uh, deals specifically with pulmonary metastasis in children with osteosarcoma. Um, having Ryan uh, participating um, is going to be putting a unique perspective on it, um, and so I, I, I'm really looking forward to his input. Uh, during the presentation, if there are things that are coming in to chat, uh, I have asked Ryan and Christina to go ahead and interrupt me. I want to try and have this as interactive um, as possible. Uh, this is one where we have spent a lot of time thinking about all of the different ramifications and ins and outs. Um, and so if something isn't making sense uh, or, or you have a, a view of things, we'd love to hear about it. So to begin with, uh, and this is one where the instruction was to have a little bit of um, sort of lower level stuff and some a little bit higher stuff. And then we'll get into the technical stuff in the last half. Um, so osteosarcoma, um, this should be uh, fairly straightforward stuff. About 400 cases in the US a year. Uh, at the initial presentation, about 20% of kids are going to have metastasis. Of this, about 75% of this 80 kids are going to have uh, lungs, uh, metastasis to the lungs alone. And that becomes really important. Uh, an additional 100 kids are going to develop lung metastasis 
at a later point after the initial management uh, for the localized disease. Uh, going back to 1927 is the first description of taking out disease that has gone to the lung. Uh, over the course of the last several decades, there have been all kinds of studies performed uh, where more aggressive surgery was warranted uh, to improve survival. That is certainly the mantra in osteosarcoma where all pulmonary disease needs to be eradicated such that in the pediatric surgical training and we go to pediatric surgery school, um, open thoracotomy had been uh, the mainstay of appropriate oncologic surgery uh, for this patient population. At the time, it would require a fairly substantial incision uh, where you would be able to have your hands in there and feeling all of the different lung surfaces. Uh, the pulmonary metastatic disease of osteosarcoma has a very firm, very sort of like sand granule uh, feel to it that you can pick up with palpation. And that sense is called haptic sense. That becomes really relevant when we start discussing this protocol. Uh, and, and having said all of that, all of the disease needs to be removed. Almost all of the disease in osteosarcoma is on the outer lung surfaces. It's rarely centrally. And so as a result, we just have to take pieces of tissue that have this abnormality out and we use a stapling device to go ahead and wedge it out. Now to go ahead and shift gears a little bit, uh, I wanna talk about minimally invasive surgery. Uh, Jacobeus back in 1910 is credited with putting in a couple of lenses uh, in a cylinder and coming up with an instrument that he was able to go ahead and use to look uh, into the airway uh, of individuals. Uh, since that time, that technology and that principle has exploded so that it is used everywhere in clinical medicine today. Back in the 1980s, the gynecologist started and subsequently picked up by general surgeons uh, to go ahead and do things called laparoscopy. So all of this falls under minimally invasive surgery. Cardiovascular, they're doing uh, minimally invasive with small incisions and scopes and specialized instruments. Their neurosurgeons are doing ventriculoscopy where they put a scope into the ventricle of the brain. Uh, there's fetal surgery, they call it fetendo. Uh, and so there's all different applications uh, as well as the video assisted thoracoscopic surgery uh, or as Ryan, as you heard Ryan mention, VATS. Oh, back one. Um, so, and, and since that time, there has been extensive uh, academic and industry efforts. The instrumentation has become super. The visualization is amazing. Uh, and so the advantage of the minimally invasive, same operation, huge principle, but smaller incisions, less pain, shorter hospitalization, and a faster recovery. Disadvantage, you are dependent on the technology that you have in your hand, and you're not able to feel the surfaces so you have an impaired haptic perception. Can I ask a question real quick? Yes, yes, yes. On on VATS, it seems like there'd be less um, less opportunity for infection as well, because you don't have such a um, big big band of uh, cut. That, that is correct. Uh, it, it, the, the, there should be uh, decreased chances. Generally speaking, Hippoclean shower beforehand. Generally speaking, IV antibiotics. You have an infection rate of about three to five percent on the open procedures. Uh, the thoracoscopy is a little bit less, hasn't really been studied or compared. Um, but so, so yes, you're right, um, but it hasn't risen to the level of, you know, oncologic significance to say, well, we're going to change practice. Yeah. But yes, it, that is a role as well. Can I just add, add one other kind of funny sure. thing? Um, <laughs> when I was being treated in pediatrics and they were talking about doing a, an open thoracotomy on me, the way that they explained it to me, and I think it was because I was in pediatrics, was, was it's like your lungs are like a crunchy, like a sandwich, right? Two pieces of bread and, and spread in between the bread is crunchy peanut butter. And putting your hands in and feeling the bread, you're feeling for where are the crunchy peanut butter parts. Yes. And, and, that, and, and, and then and they go in and they pop out the, the crunchy peanut butter parts, the, the nuts. That's correct. So they would make sure that you had no peanut butter left. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. At least the crunchy parts. That that was the problem. 
Anyway. I will say you were treated by very creative people. Yes, <laughs> a little more imaginative than, than my own presentation, but yes, <laughs> take the crunchies out. Um, all right, and so now to go all the way up to 30,000 feet, how do advances in medicine occur? I can sit in an OR lounge. Somebody tells me, hey, I did it this way. I can say, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Let me try it. Is that the right way to do it? Absolutely not. When you start looking at additional ways, animal studies are helpful and informative, editorials and opinions. And informative, but it has to be built, it has to be practiced on a much more solid base. Retrospective reviews, where you go ahead and go back and look at different things, you look at different outcomes, you look at case reports from the single institutions. Cohort studies, where you go ahead and decide what you're going to look for, and then you collect data prospectively on those data points that you're looking for for a given process is a reasonable and somewhat better way than the simple idea. But it's really not where science needs to be, and it's definitely not where oncologic therapy needs to be. The systematic review, the subsequent meta-analysis, collecting the data from the systematic and reanalyzing, those are helpful. But when it comes down to it, if you need to have a question answered, you want to conduct a randomized controlled trial. That's where you're going to be taking two reasonable paths, both of them scientifically justified, thoroughly researched, and you're going to be taking one group of patients and you're going to be uh, sending them back and forth to one or other therapy uh, to go ahead and then compare and come up with a decisive answer. So a randomized controlled trial truly is the gold standard for the advancement of medicine. So back to osteosarcoma, uh, large cooperative studies has been, have been conducted over the last three decades uh, over in Europe, as well as here in the US, uh, combined studies with Uremos, where the standard practice has been an open thoracotomy. Occasionally, if there's disease on both sides, then they go ahead and split the sternum and then can approach both lung fields at the same time. Uh, but it's an open procedure. In the last 10, 15, 20 years or so, with advocacy for and improvement in the practice of minimally invasive surgery and specifically video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery, there are some institutions that are publishing uh, data where management has been with video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery, different than the standard. At the same time, you have institutions that are publishing an even more aggressive approach to an open thoracotomy. And, and to that end, um, some institutions would go ahead and if the person presented with disease on one side, you would go ahead and recommend exploring that one side and exploring the other side that didn't have any disease looking for disease. And they would report the finding of 10, 20% of those patients having disease on the other side. So uh, I label this slide entropy, which is decline into disorder, where at the end of it, the challenge is what is the most appropriate oncologic surgery for this process. And so that's sort of the background uh, of what we were faced with. So what to do about it? The conversations began back in 2013 about conducting a prospective observational study that I had referenced before. It would give us some information. It would not really be intrusive because we are just collecting what people do. Uh, and so we approached uh, the COG leadership about that and were in talks. Concurrent with that, Dr. Gorlick and his associates at the time at the, at the Montefiore uh, conducted through the Connective Tissue Oncology Society a survey, which uh, they conducted it in 2014, showed a wide divergence of treatment based on a half centimeter nodule, one centimeter nodule, two centimeter nodule, one nodule each side, all kinds of variables put in, and the management was all over the map. So clearly, pulmonary metastasectomy, there's a base understanding that you need to take the disease out, but there's a clear uh, wide difference of opinion in the best approach. And, and that sort of worried us in terms of, you know, the, 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 the kids with, with osteosarcoma go through so much that we really do need to try and do the very best we can. That's in the eradication of the disease, 
But if we have a capacity to go ahead and, and, and make the, the therapies uh, appropriate, but a little bit better tolerated, then we need to consider that. So as a result, the COG went ahead and said, well, are surgeons willing to do that? Well, we conducted a survey in 2016, got about 17% of the surgeons in, in North America to respond. And you can see for a given process, the two specific pathologies, three uh, lesions on one side, two thirds would do it open, one third would do it VATS. Five lesions, 80% are gonna do it open, 20% are gonna do VATS. Contralateral exploration, a full 29% are gonna explore when there's no disease seen on the other side. Uh, and then the final question, would they be willing to participate in a randomized study? And 85% of the pediatric surgeons that responded said, yes, they would. Now we're faced with a situation that we're going to try and conduct a randomized study. Becomes really tricky. And so with that, uh, in 2018, a group of uh, surgeons within COG, we call ourselves the PSOR, uh, collected 206 cases um, and found that there was a significant percentage of both open and video assisted uh, procedures. And we found that there was equal survival. And so that's when the, the, this I came, first came encounter with the word clinical equipoise. Since that time, I have heard equipoise used so often that I'm going to name my next dog equipoise. Um, but equipoise means that it is balanced and appropriate and the two choices, um, there, 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 is, there is nothing untoward or bad for the pursuit of. Still trying to get to what the right answer is for metastatic osteosarcoma. Um, and then I was able to travel at Anne's invitation uh, to Florida um, and present at the January 2019 con, uh, uh, meeting and was able to, with Ryan there, uh, go ahead and present some of this material. Uh, and at the time, 69% of the folks that were there responded with a willingness to consider partation, participation in a randomized control trial. We consider that a really important thing because there is so much dogma to some of this process um, that it is vitally important um, that we understand what we're asking of folks, as well as what those folks are going to require from us. Um, and so seemed to be sufficient willingness um, such that we continued to, uh, to put the study together. Um, ran into all kinds of headwind about superiority studies versus non-inferiority studies. Um, Dr. Adamson, who was the head of COG at the time, actually put together a special surgery school uh, for me in Philadelphia uh, with the statisticians, with other folks, uh, and with a couple of other tricky surgical questions, we came up with a way forward. I have two cents to add here, <laughs> if I may. I think one of the one of the from from a patient and a parent perspective, not a parent of, a, of an osteo-warrior, but apparent period, and then having had this disease, I think one of the key things to having this 69% willingness from the patient families was there was a part of the presentation where you talked about and the surgeons uh, who, who were presenting with you as well were said, and you had said as well, that should they should you go in with the video-assisted uh, thoracotomy and you find that there's extensive disease or there are things that you didn't know were there that you could switch on a dime and you could go over to open thoracotomy. And yes. the goal always is to do right by the patient and not by the study. And I think that that's a really important distinction that as uh, a patient community, I think we all needed to hear that, that component um, that always do right by the patient first and um, you know, the, the randomized bit goes away. And now, now this is must percent. Yes. And in point of fact, we have that built into the protocol where if at any time during the operation, there needs to be a different clinical pursuit, then that will be pursued to, to, to do what's best for the patient. Yes. And so as a result, as I said, it's 48 hours old. 
uh, AOST 2031 is a phase three randomized control trial comparing open to thoracoscopic management of pulmonary metastasis in patients with osteosarcoma. Uh, going through the different NCI processes, um, they have identified the adult institutions. Uh, SWAG is the Southwest Oncology. The ECOG Akron is the Eastern Consortium. And then Alliance is run through the American College of Surgeons. And so we've actually had significant interactions with each of the three adult um, cooperative groups. Uh, there's actually a fifth one, uh, National Radi uh, Radiation, um, but this is not really a radiation study. So we have the four main clinical groups of the NCTN that are aware and will hopefully be participating. So what is the study? Um, it is a COG study, but it's going to be admit, uh, able to open in other NCT institutions. It is going to be randomizing patients with limited disease. We use the term oligometastatic, and we have uh, described that as four or fewer lesions uh, that are pulmonary metastatic that will be randomized to open or thoracoscopic surgery. One, all kinds of different challenges along the way to get this study through. One of the challenges is the heterogeneity of the disease. The fact that you are going to have some patients with very few, you're gonna have patients with one lesion, you're gonna have patients with multiple lesions. And when you start getting into all of those variables, it makes it very difficult to have a cohort that you compare back and forth. And so as a result, we have targeted at four or fewer lesions because from a surgical point, we can get out four lesions on one side. When you start dealing with 10 or 15 or 20, you cannot, and it's unreasonable to do that. And that's not right for the patient. Uh, as I said, we're most enthusiastic uh, about the fact that we have extensive involvement of our imaging uh, um, brothers and sisters. Biology is humongous, and we have actually pulled in quality of life because we think that is an important component to try and figure out if that's gonna be impacting one is better than the other. Uh, we have estimated 225 patients with 25 uh, that are not going to be able to process all the way through. Uh, this is over a, a four-year period with a six-month uh, uh, extra window. It will be broken down into six separate strata or groups to compare. It's going to be newly diagnosed patients that have standard and poor risk disease. The poor risk would be more than one lesion, would be a certain viable tumor percentage above 10%, uh, or would be bilateral disease. The standard risk would be one or just unilateral disease. Uh, then we have the, a, that's the two. The, uh, the next two would be relapse patients uh, that are going to be planned to have chemotherapy. Um, and then the, the last two uh, would be relapse patients uh, that would not be getting chemotherapy. And it was an important uh, distinction for the NCI to have relapse with chemo or relapse without chemo. Again, trying to address so much of the heterogeneity, which could negatively impact our ability to come up with a solid uh, conclusion at the completion of the study. As I said, we had a big meeting in Philadelphia. There was a lot of discussion about superiority versus non-inferiority. Non-inferiority studies for those that don't know, and I didn't know this either, they are humongously long and take enormous numbers to try and determine relevance. So as a result, we have a set the, the, the statistics to have it as a 15% margin of superiority that open is better than thoracoscopic surgery. The eligibility, again, related to heterogeneity, uh, but uh, allowing this to occur uh, in the adult consortiums, uh, we have it 50 years of age or less. Uh, there needs to be control of the primary disease. And this is another important one. If the person doesn't have control of the primary disease, then we're not gonna really know the impact of uh, our surgery if there's still disease there, then they may go ahead and not do well from the primary disease and the lung would be fine, but that would be lost. The disease can only be in the lung. We can't have it in any of the other bones or, or, or structures that it may 
go to, uh, again, impacting our ability to go ahead and say, this makes a difference. And then the last, as I identified by before, is going to be four lesions or less, the thinking there being that we can approach it either as an open or a thoracoscopic, and we feel comfortable and, 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 and secure in discussing that with our patients. This was added on a real-time preoperative central radiologic review to confirm the appropriateness of the enrollment. And this was a big NCI point. We were initially going to be having the institutions determine metastatic disease, but along the way, it was felt important enough that if we're going to be having patients participate, we need to be 100% certain of what we're looking at. And so we have um, about uh, 10 radiologists that are going to be involved. And I'll, I'll get to the, to the bilateral in just a moment. Um, we're going to have about 10 radiologists involved. We are going to be um, having uh, a, a less than 72-hour uh, turnaround return to the institution um, that will confirm. But in addition to that, that central radiologic review is going to be very useful. We're going to be recording all kinds of information as to the nature of the lesion. So we're going to have this centrally collected. We're going to have the surgical data. We're going to have the pathology data. And we are now going to be able to look at the, the, the process through. Um, and this was disease, this wasn't disease uh, kind of moments. And so we're hoping to get a lot of, of, of important information on the imaging side. Institutional localization efforts are permitted. That means, as I said before, you don't have haptic sense on the, on the thoracoscopic, but we have gotten really good with radiologists going ahead and placing things directly into a lesion to take out. They can inject it with methylene blue. We can give something in the intravenous the day before that is going to make this lesion pop out as a bright yellow. There's all kinds of localization efforts that are being done by institutions all across the country. And so we are actually going to be collecting that data, hopefully to inform which are the best localization efforts that result in the highest percentages of disease, as well as the ones that don't work so good. It will be randomized to open versus VATS. This will be unilateral and bilateral disease. This is going to be uh, the only caveat is that there can be four or fewer lesions. So if a person has bilateral disease, we are going to be bringing those patients into the, um, into the, into the study as well. Uh, they can be done where both surgeries are done in one day. It can be staged so that the second surgery is done uh, within two weeks of the first surgery. Uh, we're going to be collecting information for the localization as well as as all of the quality of life uh, for both of the surgeries. The, the whole thing needs to be done within 28 days uh, from the date of imaging to diagnose the, uh, the uh, metastasis uh, in anticipation of surgery. Important clarification, for a, newly, uh, for a patient uh, with initial metastatic disease, they're gonna go through all of their therapy, uh, initially including the resection of the tumor. Then the expectation is, they're going to address the chest disease, the pulmonary disease. The CT scan is obtained. And at that point, that's the 28-day window for the initial presentation. Recurrence patients are generally going to be having a CT scan. They say, oh my gosh, there's something there. That's going to be their 28-day window. So a little bit of a difference there. But 28 days is important because we don't want to have the disease change too much. The quality of life studies, the quality of life committee of COG is thrilled about this. Uh, so with the randomization, they're going to be conducting surveys before the operation to get a baseline understanding of how the person feels. They're going to be getting an initial pain um, survey at 48 hours. We're going to be doing one at seven to 14 days, which is a guesstimate of discharge from hospital. And then we're going to be getting one at four to six weeks uh, with thoracotomy patients still, um, you know, potentially impacted or not by the surgery. Um, so the quality of life is a really big piece. And then we're going to be getting CT scan of the chest every three months for the first two years, covered by insurance. And then the institutions will be maintaining CT surveillance after that point 
and they will be uh, and and they will be the ones that determine uh, if there is any disease found in the chest. Oh, Dr. Dosky, we had a question yes, coming yes. about bilateral disease and how that would be yes. handled. And I think you mentioned that you could maybe do the um, the either the thoracotomy or thoracostomy on both sides. Yes. Um, could you elaborate that on a little bit? And could sure. you have? Are you still eligible as long as you have four or fewer lesions per side? Correct. That is exactly correct. Four or fewer lesions per hemithorax or per side. If there is bilateral disease, then we are going to be enrolling those patients as well, um, provided they in the institution feel that this is appropriate. Yes. And in the very beginning, you had mentioned a sternotomy. And I, yes. I know my son had a couple of those. And so how does that play into this um, for bilateral disease? Because that is you know, has been an option for bilateral disease. We're going to be, um, we're not being too prescriptive in terms of the bilateral. It's an open procedure. And so it leaves wiggle room because there are acknowledged institutional preferences, bilateral thoracotomy in some big places, sternotomy in others. Uh, the bilateral thoracotomy is a bigger physiologic impact on the person having it done to both sides. Sternotomy has its, has its people that advocate against it because they say they can't get as good a feel of the posterior lung field. So um, acknowledging that there, is, there are advocates of both, uh, we will be collecting the data on both um, to hopefully also inform. As I said at the beginning, there really has never been much attention paid to nor a metastatic study. Um, so, so it's sort of new ground here. All right, and so to, 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 to get a little bit tighter into the weeds, and this is some of the stuff that we've gone through in the last two years in refining the study. So as I said, we wanna try and be able um, to deal with the patients in a very similar way. So we have a, we have a prescription uh, of how many lesions. Um, we have a prescription uh, of what these different radiolo radiology pieces are gonna look like. This is one where the last phase three had three lesions of five millimeter or more, or one lesion of 1.5 centimeter or more would meet criteria for metastat pulmonary metastatic disease. Now, in the 20 years since that study existed, <coughs> this, is, this has changed dramatically. And this is one where we are routinely clinically calling metastatic disease at three millimeters. So we are going to be lowering our metastatic threshold. Again, this is going to be central radiologic review to go ahead and confirm appropriateness to have at least one lesion that's going to be three millimeters or greater. None of the lesions can be bigger than three centimeter. The concern there being that you're going to be doing a much bigger operation and you're going to have to deliver that thing through a hole. Um, and so as a result, three millimeters generally not going to be amenable to thoracoscopic surgery. As I said before, for minimally invasive, you want to try and do the same operation. We did a lot of work related to uh, the diagnostic criteria. And so we've come up with a subjective certainty of, of uh, greater than 90% or suspicious for, which is greater than 75%. And so the two criteria, five millimeter or greater and calcified are going to be consistent with suspicious for if there's demonstrated interval growth, if it is a solid lesion, if it's not subplural, if it occurs with other nodules, there are actually other radiologic criteria that we're going to be assessing for uh, in the process of the central radiologic review. Um, and so we should be able to get a whole bunch more information about the ultimate nature of these nodules that are gonna be taken out. The real-time radiology review confirms eligibility, and then our radiologists are going to be uh, processing and going through the additional radiologic features. As I said, the scan at eight to 12 weeks post-op, and then every three months or so, um, and this is going to be uh, a thoracic event when the patient um, may have a, a, a new nodule seen uh, that's going to be called by the institution, um, and that's going to be actually our primary scientific objective. 
So, as I said, the other disciplines, pathology. So, in all of the COG studies and all of the studies that have been conducted, there has never been a systematic collection of metastatic specimens for sample. This is huge. And so this, this absence of tissue um, has made it extremely difficult for researchers to go ahead and gain additional insight and information comparing the original tumor to the metastatic tumor. Are there things that make it metastasize? Are there things that we can go ahead and affect? So they are going to be creating uh, tumor models uh, from this. Uh, and with, with hopefully 250 patients, we have an extensive way to process the tissue. This, the resected specimen is going to be uh, delivered fresh to pathology uh, in a sterile container uh, with the site that it was obtained from. They're going to be obtaining blood samples. And this is a, a really, really big area of oncology now where liquid biopsy and finding out where they have detection mechanisms in place now to detect below the, the billionths. And in that kind of a setting, um, looking to see if there is a, a specimen of blood that can tell us that the patient has metastatic disease. We're gonna be collecting that after enrollment when the CT scan shows pulmonary disease. And then we're gonna be collecting specimens at a later date to go ahead and assess for that uh, that uh, signature in the bloodstream as well. Uh, the, inst the local institution is going to be doing what it normally does. Uh, we're going to be asking them to assess the surgical margin. Um, the microscopic sampling is something that we've really never paid much attention to as surgeons or pathologists. We take a lesion out. Um, and when it's a pulmonary metastatic lesion, we hardly ever pay as much attention as opposed to uh, when the primary osteosarcoma is being managed, where they go crazy with the R0, R1, and R2 resection. So we're going to be hopefully getting some information there. As I said, the quality of life is going to be, is, is really exciting. Um, it is going to be collected um, on REDCap. It is going to be uh, phone, uh, where we're going to be sending out a survey. At, at this point, even babies have their own cell phone. So we're going to be sending out um, a, a questionnaire to the cell phone for the individual uh, to go ahead uh, and answer some questions. We're going to be using Promise, which is a validated um, uh, international use. There are Promise um, questionnaires for children as well as for adults. So we'll be benefiting from both of those. The Promise 25 is children. The Promise 29 is adults. We're going to be looking at the upper extremity function. As I said before, thoracotomy can be significantly limiting related to the trapezius and the latissimus dorsi and the serratus anterior affected uh, with thoracotomy. We're gonna be getting an initial survey prior to the operation. We're gonna be collecting a single uh, pain score at 48 hours from the operation. Um, this, and this should actually be interesting because there are some people who have VATS where they're home the same day or, this, or the day after. Um, and so, you know, being able to go ahead and validate this, uh, we've been, we've tried to be fairly thoughtful, um, but also maximizing what we're going to learn. We're going to be collecting pain medication administration data uh, that will also be used. As I said, uh, we'll collect the post-op 7 to 14 days. That's the old school version of about time to go home. And then the four to six weeks, you're sufficiently recovered from the immediacy of the perioperative events. And we're gonna be looking again to see how things have returned hopefully to some baseline. Uh, we have a question. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it says, are you using both quantitative scales and qualitative tools for assessing pro? Yes. In terms of the, of the quantitative, we are going to be giving them scales to go ahead and, and fill some of the stuff out. There are other areas of the questionnaire that are a simple yes or no but all of it has been validated. The only scales we are using are the promise measures. Uh, this is being orchestrated through Katie Greenzang um, and, and the folks up at Harvard. Um, and with the promise 25, as well as the upper extremity questionnaire, um, I think there are eight or 10 questions to it. Um, some of them with scales and some of them with simple yes and no. Um, 
So to continue on, so the, the, the sort of the boring stuff at the tippy end is, is mostly related to uh, the, the, the uh, research questions. Um, and so the primary question, as I had indicated before, is going to be looking at if and when there is a recurrence of disease in the chest. Uh, we call that thoracic event-free survival. Uh, we are going to be uh, determining that on the basis of the institution obtaining the CT scan in the post-operative period. Um, and we are going to say that open procedure is 15% better than thoracoscopic procedure. Uh, numbers less than that are going to be significantly impactful when it comes to considering the other data that we collect. Uh, the secondary um, objectives uh, to determine if open surgical resection is superior to thoracoscopy for event-free survival. The difference between event-free survival and thoracic event being that you, you have recurred somewhere else. And that was a, an input requested uh, along the way by some, some, uh, some uh, reviewers. Um, another, the, uh, the, the second uh, secondary to determine if open surgical resection is superior to thoracoscopy for overall survival. So if you go ahead and have thoracoscopy and you go ahead and have a recurrence um, that is uh, sooner, but you go ahead and then have additional two or three thoracoscopies over the next eight or 10 years, what is the overall survival? And is, is, is this an appropriate way to approach it? Um, and, then if, and then the last one to determine if thoracoscopy is superior to open surgical resection for post-operative pain interference in patients with resectable oligometastatic pulmonary osteosarcoma. There was a study in Europe two years ago where they compared open and thoracoscopic surgery for lobectomy for lung cancer in adults. Um, and so this is a very relevant and a very important question um, to try uh, and determine uh, within this, this special population. And so I see qualitative would be open questions in which patients can respond in their own words. Uh, no, it, it, it's going to be a yes or no uh, in terms of the data collection uh, that we, uh, we can access. And then the exploratory objectives, we have surgery and imaging objectives. We are gonna be very interested in surgical complications. Um, did the patient have uh, required transfusion? Was there significant blood loss? Did they have something happen during the operation that was significant and impactful? Uh, we have different types of adverse events. Uh, to compare patterns of recurrence, this gets into the early presentation where I was talking about people you know, 29% of the, of the APSA population would advocate for a contralateral exploration in the absence of unilateral disease. So we want to compare the patterns of recurrence uh, comparing both methods. Uh, we want to go ahead and, and find out what people are doing to localize to find out the relationship better or worse um, with, with completeness of resection and how the patients do and whether there really was disease there. Uh, we are going to be spending quite a bit of time looking at these, this perspective, this um, central reviewed imaging um, to go ahead and get as much information as we can from what we're looking at on the CT scan. The CT scans have got immensely uh, more detail over the course of the last uh, 10 to 20 years. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. And so uh, some biology and quality of life, as I said, uh, with metastatic tissue that we are going to be very deliberately accumulating, we should be able to generate well-characterized and clinically annotated, meaning as we're going to be relating it back to the, uh, the primary tumor and how the patient does, uh, distributable models of osteosarcoma for people to use. We're going to be collecting and banking uh, the pulmonary metastatic lesions, the paired lesion, which is the primary disease. We are going to be collecting the blood samples, specifically looking uh, for the liquid biopsy approach. <clears throat> As stated, we are going to be uh, collecting the, the patient reported outcomes, um, comparing between surgeries. Uh, we're going to be looking at functional impairment, pain intensity, and the health-related quality of life. 
um, and then to assess the prognostic significance of a decision to change the post-operative treatment plan to go ahead and see if it is going um, to matter one way or another. Oh, Dr. Dosk, I just had a question on that first bullet point on the last slide. Does that mean on the distributable, does that mean um, cell lines will be created from that or? Yes, cell lines as well as, as, as the, the genetic sequencing. Yes, ma'am. Okay, great. All right, um, so that was the last slide. Um, that is the study. Uh, we're pretty excited um, because it, as, I, as you've seen, um, it's really grown into um, a number of different areas of the process that we have not really paid much attention to before. And the fact that we can go ahead and get a lot of information and hopeful advancement for imaging uh, for those lesions that are or are not more relevant. Um, the fact that we can go ahead um, and potentially um, try and make it a little bit easier going through these operations is helpful. Um, and then the biology piece is just, it's wide open. I've, I've had comments from pathologists where, you know, this is a truly unique moment for them to, to, to get this, these, these kinds of tissues. So I thank you for your attention. I welcome any additional questions. Uh, and most importantly, I need you, everybody to start pushing their doctors to open this study. Um, having 50 patients accrued a year was a little bit optimistic, um, just related to the specificity of our population uh, done to reduce the heterogeneity, but it is a fact. Um, and so we definitely need a whole bunch of folks um, to, to help get this open and to accrue. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Doske. Actually, just to that point, I, one question I had, and I imagine that a bunch of people have, is if, if a patient did want to enroll in the study, is this, because it is a COG study, is it available at a COG institution or is not yet? And if I, you know, if a patient wants to enroll, what's the best way to go about that? It's 48 hours old. Okay, so almost nobody knows about it. It has gone through the central IRB process of the NCI and it has been approved. We have all of the consent uh, items addressed. And so at this point, it is going to be a push to the principal investigators at each of the cancer institutions to go ahead and open the study. Uh, we have the mechanisms in place uh, for central review of the radiology pieces. We have the mechanisms in place for the processing of tissue. Uh, we have the radiologists uh, primed and ready to go. Uh, I, am, I am being schooled in all kinds of, of data review on a national level that I wish I never had. Um, so we are definitely ready. Um, this will be, as I said, an NCTN, which means that if if the organization is part of any of the major national consortiums, all they have to do is ask the NCI to open it. Um, so this is a COG, this is SWOG, this is ECOG, this is even Alliance. Um, I will tell you, um, I have spent quite a bit of time with the adult organizations um, and it's been interesting and it's been telling. And so when I presented, and it was each of the three, had the same type of pattern. Well, I'm here to present this. Why do we need this study? There's no question here. Well, I think there is a question and you know, you try and be gentle in those kinds of moments. And then, well, no, it, it has been answered. Everybody knows you have to do an open thoracotomy. And within this audience, there would be other people in the audience to say, no, you're completely wrong everybody knows it's thoracoscopy. And they would sort of go back and forth arguing each other at the end of which I would just walk away and say, this is the reason we need the study. Um, this is one where other folks have said, we really don't need the study because you can do an open thoracotomy and have almost no physical impact. And then go ahead and have an enhanced recovery after surgery. That's another big buzzword in the surgical world. It's called ERAS, that we have different ERAS patterns in place that really make it unnecessary to even ask the question because thoracotomy is no big deal. Unless you're getting one, then it's a real Unless, <laughs> That's exactly it, unless you're getting one. So in that regard, I'm hoping 
um, that if there are individuals that are going to be specifically bringing this up with different institutions, that there would be a willingness with all of the mechanism in place to open the study at their institution, in which case they're on study. Uh, I have a question just kind of like regarding, yeah. I guess, more like surgery in general, like how long, so like after initial like metastasis and then like initial surgery between the two, how long before you can like say that person relapses it like a second time? How long before you can have another surgery? Um, if, if, they, if, if the person relapses, then you can have a surgery immediately uh, because at that point, um, that's the end of our study. Well, it, it's the end of, of our primary objective of the study. So you could have an operation typically within a week or two uh, for recurrent disease. Uh, this is one where the further out you get from the last surgery and the further away you get from the initial presentation, the better it is. Um, the fewer the lesions, the better it is. Um, thoracoscopy is get generally going to be easier to do a reoperation on than a thoracotomy. And so that can be done um, within, you know, you have to schedule it. Uh, and things are still a little bit stupid with COVID, uh, but there should really not be much delay. So it should be done within a week or two. There's really no reason to wait. Yeah. And then I guess, I guess a follow-up question is you guys are kind of, at least at this point with COVID and everything and kind of how, um, I guess, scheduling may be a little harder to do during this time. And if that like is accounted for. I, I, I would use the term harder. I would use the term stupid. Um, so it, 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 you know, you just have to, to, to argue with people that, yeah, you have to do this. Um, but no, we, we still, in the setting of oncology, um, and this is one that is pretty much across the board in the country, for any patients that are having oncology procedures, they are clearly prioritized and they are clearly getting done in the timely manner that they need and deserve. So this is one where uh, if there is uh, a relapse that's picked up, either first relapse or any of the additional relapses, we've had kids with four or five relapses where we just continue to operate to try and, and you know, hopefully someday get truly ahead of it all, um, that it's, it's usually pretty quick. We had another question come in. Um, so this is great. The COG is in Canada and we will open at St. Justine in Montreal. Are SWOG, ECOG, and Alliance potentially in Canada? And can they reach out to adult thoracic surgeons in Montreal? Please, we would love that. Um, and, and again, the, everybody's been sort of waiting. Um, it's been about eight years worth of windmills. Um, so it, it's sort of an unusual moment to have finally given birth um, and have the study available. Now we definitely want all hands on deck to try and open and try and recruit because it is going to be a little bit trickier related to the requirements that we have put into the process. But as I've explained, that's sort of necessary uh, because we want to be able to try and have a truly well-considered answer at the end of this. Thank you for the massive and very exciting foresight to have the pathology be such a strong component here. This is something we desperately need in osteosarcoma. We need that data and we especially need that metastatic tumor data. And to be able to compare to the original tumor, and I think I saw circulating tumor DNA, right? Yes, 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 okay. yes. Huge. I mean, totally, this is this is such a big deal. And I, so I have a follow-up question to my like, like so thrilled that this is happening in this way. Do you then report back any possibly actionable data to the patient family as well as to the to the to the I, treating physician? At this point, it's pretty much research. I, so we haven't gotten to clinical implications of the results. Um, and, and in point of fact, I'm not really quite sure. I know there, there, there are a couple of big labs, the Crompton lab and the Weiser lab are, are two of the big ones uh, that are gonna be processing the CTDNA. Um, in point of fact, um, the only one we're gonna feel confident of getting is gonna be the one at time of operation. 
And so I'm hoping that that will go ahead and establish a model for liquid biopsy for that detection purpose. Uh, in terms of the institutions following up and providing material is a little trickier. I have one more, I have one more question just sure. really to Ryan. <laughs> Um, I'm wondering, because you had the VAT surgery, which you shared at the, at the top, how did that happen? Like, because I know like we were, we were treated around the same time. And if you said to anybody, I'm having VAT surgery, it'd be like, oh, wait, what? Don't you know that you need to be having a, an open thoracotomy? Like, so how did that happen? And did you know about that when that was like, I know your mom is like so careful about treatment and and all of that. So I know all of that's in place. I'm just wondering what that, what that process was like for you. So at the time it was only like a small nodule. It might've been like five millimeters or something, but definitely like metastatic, but, uh, in a, I guess in one side of my lung. Um, and the surgeon that I had was super confident with doing vats. He said he's done a lot of them. So he was just something he was confident in and he didn't like, he, he offered the idea that obviously like, um, the downsides of using vats versus thoracotomy, he did allow us to choose which one he wanted to do. And we were just, um, kind of had to weigh that decision and we chose to do vats just because it was one, one nodule. There wasn't anything that was picked up like the radiology, like anything larger, anything above, um, I think I forget the, the cutoff point, um, but uh, there wasn't anything else. Um, and so it's just something that he was confident in doing. And so we just trusted him. Yeah. Um, yeah. So <laughs> did, did he say he was going to look around as well with the scope? Yeah, he said he was going to look around. He said he could like use his like, like a single finger, I think, to go in and like feel like the general area. I don't know how much that helps, obviously, because he can't get the whole lung. OK, thanks for sharing that. <laughs> And believe it or not, you can actually, if you get a finger in, you can go ahead and with the thoracoscopic instruments, move a significant component uh, of the lung surfaces into the zip code of your finger so that you can feel more than you would think. So interesting. And I, I think the, the part for me that's really interesting on, on Ryan's case is like hearing from the patient side, like what did you know about this and what led you to go no that or no absolutely open thoracotomy it's that that's a pretty pivotal moment and i think ryan said something really interesting there that so that there was a, a good part of it that the balance tipped in favor of that's because the surgeon was that confident the randomness of the moment and how that occurred um, is something um, that is one of the main factors in trying to have us assess and come up with a much more scientifically sound approach. Yes. Yeah, and I think if it was like more than just one or if I had like one in each side, then it might have been like a different story. Um, so, I mean, I could say that like, I guess possibly I just got lucky, but it, it's too hard to ever know. Your mom does not put luck into the equation. <laughs> <She's> like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was a super well thought out on all parties, but um, but I think for like at least like yeah. my quality of life, it definitely like helped out a lot because obviously not having to have that longer recovery time and being in the hospital for longer. Um, at least how long were you in the hospital for? Like a day or two, maybe like two nights. I forget very exactly. <laughs> yeah, very fast. Okay, this has been so fun. We can like, I have, I have so many more questions that I just, like. We could just keep having this conversation, but um, we want to give you back your your afternoon and probably um, back to your patients. Um, so thank you, Dr. Dosky. I know this has been a long um, gestation period, and you stuck with it and. I really do think this is going to make it better for kids with osteosarcoma, especially with the biology component in there. It's just so huge, but also the recovery time. There's so much to this. And I really hope that people push, push forward and really ask their, ask their doctor about participating in this trial with COG, which is a really important part oh, of the COG or SWOG or ECOG or Alliance because they're, mm -hmm. op they're, they're openable 
at all of the NCTN institutions. So it's really, it, 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 the emphasis is to go as far and wide as we can. Yes. Okay, and if you don't remember any of this um, and you're, you're listening, know that um, this Osteobytes and all Osteobytes can be found on YouTube, um, on our MIB Agents YouTube channel, on mibagents.org, on our Osteobytes page, or anywhere you get your podcast. If you registered for this Osteobytes session, you'll, you're gonna be emailed the final version of this Osteobytes, as well as any links that were discussed. Um, and then next week, I have to tell you about a really cool Osteobytes next week. Um, we're having a really unique kind of Osteobytes. We're talking with Dr. Kurt Weiss, who is an osteo warrior, an amputee, an osteosarcoma researcher, and surgeon. I'm gonna add in rapper, like mogul. I don't know, <laughs> so many good parts of Dr. Weiss. Um, he's at University of Pittsburgh. He's gonna be sharing the bite stage with MIB Agents uh, Junior Advisory Board President. Kara Scrubis, who's also an osteo-warrior and also an amputee. They're gonna be talking about amputation surgery for osteosarcoma from both the physician, surgeon's perspective and the patient's perspective. So that's gonna be really interesting. Bring your questions for that. Until then, Dr. Dosky, thank you so much. Ryan and Christina, thank you so much. And thanks everybody for joining today. Um, great session. Thanks again. Thank you.